90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? Um, I'm not going to lie, John. I know what it feels like to be you this week. Oh, yeah? Well, what are you doing? <laughs> I mean, I don't mean a coding nerd, but I do mean <laughs> I've been stuck underneath a magnetometer again. <laughs> <laughs> and I got to play with more potentiometers and learned all this weird stuff about electronics and used an oscilloscope for oh, many, yeah. many hours. Mm-hmm. It was fascinating. I learned a lot. So you're going to change careers now? God, no. (laughs) (laughs) I learned, the number one thing I learned is that I don't want to be an electrical engineer. Um, (laughs) But I also learned that I think a lot of people don't know how their labs work. Oh, yeah. I mean, me included, until I've spent all of these, I mean, I've been complaining about it on this show for a long time, and we're still not back up. But um, yeah, I've learned more electrical engineering in like the past four days i think and learned the true inner workings of a magnetometer not just stick a rock in get magnetic data out (laughs) right yeah but like how to talk to things and it's fascinating yeah so i mean we've actually been in kind of a a similar mode we've had some issues with our machine and during our weekly lab meeting uh my advisor and i were talking about you know oh well maybe it's a servo valve and maybe we need to change that or what if the manifold scored and we realized that everybody else looked at us like we were speaking a completely different language. Oh, man. <laughs> oh. Um, yeah, so there are a lot of issues with that where I think people don't fundamentally understand how their equipment works. And then when it breaks, you're just kind of stuck. Right, exactly. Because, I mean, in our case, there's only one, well, not only is there only one company, but there's really only one person that does this. So that's definitely, I mean, that's probably the norm for a lot of very specific scientific instrumentation. So that's scary. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there was a deal with uh, some of the gravimeters a while back. Uh, oh, and actually some of the seismometers where there was like a guy that yeah. knew how to do this. Yep, exactly. And when he retired, <laughs> that was the end of that line of instruments. Exactly. It's unbelievable yeah. to me. Um, I'm sure there's a show in this somewhere because I'm just... I'm learning how important it is and how time-consuming it is to truly understand this stuff. And I imagine that, you know, we're talking about this five years down the road. I'm going to be really glad I spent all this time on it. But Yeah. Yeah, yeah definitely. <laughs> so, is that what you're doing too? Lab work? Yep. Yep. So, yeah. lab work. And actually, so we've got some guests coming up. So, I've been pre- helping uh, prepare for that. You know, we've been working on notes for that. And then we actually got a voice uh, memo from one of our listeners with regards to last week's show, but I'm going to hold it off for okay. one more week Okay. because it was a seemingly innocent question that I think might be an entire episode. Oh my goodness. Okay, well, <laughs> I, I do love it when those fall into our lap. <laughs> yeah. It was one of those things. It's like, well, we, we could, we could answer this question that regards atmospheric pressure in a few sentences, or we could really talk about what atmospheric pressure is. Ooh, interesting. Okay, great. Yeah. So that's coming up. But if you, uh, you know, we'll do the kind of the the TV series intro of last week on Don't Panic. (laughs) Uh, Last week, we talked about hurricanes, and we talked about the structure of hurricanes, kind of their purpose for existing there are these big heat engines that are trying to move excess heat energy from the equator to the higher latitudes. And then we talked about some records that have been set by various hurricanes. But we didn't get to all the super fun stuff, which is how do you even begin to measure all of those records? How do we know the pressure inside a hurricane or what the structure looks like? Right. And like you mentioned, you know, when they get close to land, we have land-based radar. But until then, especially, you know, pre-satellite era, there wasn't really a good way to know except, oh, it looks like it's going to get stormy. And then it gets really stormy. (laughs) Uh, And because we're humans, the second half of that sentence is, look over there at that storm. Let's go fly a plane into it. (laughs) 
<laughs> right. <laughs> so one of the primary ways we get information about hurricanes is through hurricane hunter flights. Are these people that strapped themselves into planes, and it was the only way that we got information pre-satellite era. Right. Uh, and I mean, satellites still can't tell us exact measurements about a hurricane except for its size. So we still do this today. This isn't something, I mean, it happened a long time ago, but it's still something that's very important to understanding hurricane dynamics. Oh, yeah. And I mean, so a satellite, you can get an estimate of wind speed, but it's upper level. Uh, you don't get a really good low level wind speed and we cannot get the pressure from satellite. Right. So we still need these guys. But these are, there's some interesting stories to go along with these planes. And um, so when did this first start happening, though? Well, so the idea for it was put forth by somebody uh, that was a captain named Captain W.L. Farnsworth of the Galveston Commercial Association in the early 1930s. Okay, okay. Galveston, that makes sense. We talked about one of the deadliest hurricanes ever hit Galveston in the 1900s. Right. So this was put forth. uh, The Weather Bureau, which would later become the National Weather Service, Mm -hmm. uh, supported this storm patrol bill, and it passed the Senate and the House uh, on June 15th of 1936. Okay. But that is not the first flight into a hurricane. Uh, The first time that the eyewall of a hurricane was penetrated was in 1943. Wow. And it, uh, like all good scientific ventures, was a bet. (laughs) I love this. This is pretty pretty wonderful. (laughs) Right. So it was summertime, and there were a bunch of British pilots that were over uh, training, and this, this storm was coming. And one of the trainer aircraft that we've used a lot in that era was the AT-6 Texan. Right. So it's this little single-engine prop plane. (laughs) And so we were pulling all these out of there because we did not want them to get damaged by the storm. And the Brits were kind of making fun of us, saying that our aircraft weren't very durable. (laughs) We'll Uh, show you. (laughs) Right. So this colonel named Joe Duckworth said, yeah, no, they're fine. And he got into one and flew it straight through the hurricane. (laughs) That's amazing. (laughs) Um, But that's not where it stopped, right? He didn't just do this once. (laughs) No, so he got back and said, see, it was fine. And so this uh, this navigator, a Lieutenant Ralph O'Hare, who was the weather officer at the base at the time, so this was Brian Field, uh, and another guy, Lieutenant William Jones Burdick, took over. Uh, he was in the the navigator's position, and they flew through the storm a second time. Uh, <laughs> take, take that, Brits! <laughs> right. So that was the first flight in 1943, and so we knew it was possible. And it was kind of scattered here and there after that. Uh, but in 1946, they started calling these hurricane hunters. Ah, and great. then now we have this systematized uh, effort where we have several organizations that actually fly these missions routinely now. And we still call them hurricane hunters. We do. Yes. And <laughs> they're flown, like I said, so they're maybe one of the more famous is the 53rd Weather Reconnaissance Squadron, which is mm-hmm. the Air Force. Right. Right. And so who else flies these? Um, well, there's NOAA, obviously. So that's the sort of head above the National Weather Service, the National Oceanic Atmospheric Administration. And those are the, the hurricane hunters, right? And they fly out of McDill in Tampa. And these are those, the big um, Lockheed WP-3D Orion aircraft. And so this is what I'm familiar with more than um, the other ones because – these are all the guys you always meet at meteorology um, conferences. Right. And actually, NOAA also has a, a G4. That's so small, though. It is a business <laughs> aircraft, but they fly it at 41,000 feet oh, for high man. level. That's nice. That's nice. I'm yeah, guessing so that's it's... above most of the um, real crap that's going on in a hurricane. I would think so. I think the service ceiling of a G4 is something like 43 or 45,000 feet. So they're pretty close to the service ceiling, but they're way up there. (laughs) Oh, man. That's scary. (laughs) Yeah. uh, So, yeah. So they're they're in Tampa. But Mm -hmm. the the 53rd, which is the Air Force, uh, they are the only military weather recon group in the world. Really? They are. 
That surprises yes. me. That really yeah. surprises me. Hmm. Yeah, everywhere else uh, it's done by an organization like NOAA or NASA. NASA also flies several missions. But the 53rd is based in Biloxi, Mississippi at Keesler AFB. Mm-hmm. And they have a, a Lockheed WC-130J. Okay, that's pretty big too. <laughs> that's a big plane. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and uh, their kind of general mode of operation with this thing is they fly multiple times through the hurricane, so into and out of the eye several times, at altitudes varying from 10,000 feet all the way down to 500 feet above the deck. Oh, man. <laughs> like, SC-130s, those are big planes. The Hercules yeah. planes? I mean, they call them Hercules, all right? 500 feet off the ground? Yeah. It's like that... <laughs> time those spruce goose flew or something like that's what i imagine <laughs> um what's cool that this is still um i didn't know it was the only military weather recon group but it's cool that that's still around because the just like you just said john the start of our weather service was um the united states weather bureau and there was a lot of military input into that so that's pretty cool right and so i actually just looked up because we said it was a big plane, but I wanted to quantify that a little bit. Uh, <laughs> no, big so is good when, enough. <laughs> when they are 500 feet above the ground, they are 3.75 times their wingspan off the ground. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> so, see, they can still roll and it'll be fine. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> oh, man. That's scary. Yeah, and, but there have been a ton of other aircraft that we've used over the years to look at hurricanes, including uh, the Lockheed U-2. Oh, Okay. Yep. So that went through Hurricane Ginny in 1963. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's see. A20s, B24s, B17s, B25s, B29s, all those. <laughs> Can a B17 the... even slow down enough to even feel the effects of a hurricane? <laughs> yeah. I mean, really. I so, guess it is a behemoth, too. <laughs> yeah. And, and there have been a lot. Of, a lot of these were uh, from the 40s to... Yeah, 50s, 60s for a lot of those. Right. Uh, There's WC-121Ns that were in service up until the early 70s. Uh, But these WC-130As, they've been used since uh, the 60s until present. Yeah. For for a lot of these missions. Yeah. That's crazy. Um, Have you ever been inside one of these aircraft? I have not been inside one of the... So I guess we should talk about the nomenclature a little bit. So the WC-130 is the weather variant right of the c-130 i've been inside c-130s i've been inside pby's and several other of these aircraft but i have not been inside the weather version of any of them i got to go into the wp3d and it was super awesome so what's how's it uh how's it laid out how's it different than a regular p3 right it's just crammed full of electronics on the inside essentially that's how, okay. I mean, if you've been, you've been in a C-130 and it's just this big hulking thing, so I don't know how those are, but the P-3 versus the WP-3 is just, it's just crammed full of all their stuff, basically. Um, I got to meet one of the pilots. He came to, he came to my poster for some reason. <laughs> uh, well, it's because I did work on a downburst algorithm, so that's important for planes. And uh, he right. talked and it was the coolest interaction at a poster I've ever had. Um, and I asked him cause he was, he was a pilot and I asked him like what the, no, I'm sorry. He wasn't a pilot because he was the science officer. He was in the back crammed into all this stuff. And I said, what's the scariest thing that's happened? You know? And he's like, Oh, it's fine. We've lost engines. It's no big deal. And he goes, well, one time we lost 3000 feet in a second. I hit the ceiling and that kind of hurt. <laughs> And it's like, and I asked him because I'd been in this WB3 and I was like, so you hit stuff on the way down because there's not a lot of room in front of some of those big consoles. He's like, yeah, yeah, it hurt. <laughs> so I've turned the awesome. seatbelt sign on for your safety. <laughs> yeah. Please return to your seats and fasten your seatbelt securely across your lap. <laughs> <laughs> None of that, man. They're in a hurricane. They don't care. But the nonchalantness of him talking about losing engines was super impressive. <laughs> So, um, wow. Yeah, it was pretty neat. <laughs> I mean, it's it is a dangerous job though. Oh, yeah. Um I was actually surprised you 
put together quite a list of how many planes have gone down because you don't hear about it very often, but it looks, I mean, nothing's really recently happened. Yeah, so the most recent accident was in 1974, but in total U.S. hurricane research aircraft, there have been six lost crews since we've been doing this. I can't believe it's not more. Yeah, it is surprising. Some of these were sort of tiny storms, too. Not all of them, but... Yeah, and I think some of it was our technology is so much better now. You know, we can do things like, oh, we, we lost an engine. It's fine. Right. Um, yeah. So, and some exactly. of these are pretty small planes. The, the first mm-hmm. was on October 1st of 1945, and this was a Category 1 typhoon over the South China Sea. Gotcha. And we recovered this one. Right. So this was a, a PBY. It was a PB4Y, which I don't know if you've seen these planes. I but. not. Uh, Yes, it was the only one that we've actually found the wreckage of. So they were at about 9,500 feet and had some kind of failure and ended up crash landing on an island, but everybody was killed during the crash. Oh, that's awful. Right. So that one uh, was storm-related, but maybe had some mechanical components, Yeah, no kidding. Because, I mean, a Cat 1, that's, as we learned last week... (laughs) 70, 74 miles an hour. So, 74. I mean, that's, <laughs> that's not that's not super strong, but this uh, the next one was a pretty big one. Yeah. So then October 26, 1952, this was in a WB-29, WB uh, that was called the Typhoon Goon 2. <laughs> uh, yeah, so it was Typhoon Wilma, and they were uh, 300 miles east of the Philippines. And this one was an interesting... Uh, set of circumstances they had radioed in and said their radar altimeter had failed okay. so the radar altimeter is sending out an electromagnetic pulse it hits mm-hmm. the water it bounces back you time that and you figure out how high you are traditional altimeters work on pressure right and when you're flying through a storm that has dramatic changes in pressure mm-hmm. it's difficult to actually know what altitude you're at above the ground and Wilma carries one of those pressure, um, one of the pressure records, too. So Right. Hence, this so, happened. <laughs> the, the crew decided that they were going to fly at, at a constant pressure altitude, yeah. which just means they're going to keep the pressure altimeter in the same spot and go up or down whatever they need to to do that. Well, so when you go into the eye, as they go through the eye wall, they would need to descend rapidly. Right. right. And... What's most likely happened is during that descent, they were hit by a downdraft and were unable to recover. So they either lost control of the aircraft and couldn't recover with the altitude they had left, or the downdraft just slammed them into the surface of the water. Unbelievable. Right. So unbelievable. no wreckage and nothing was ever found from that. That is 185 mile an hour winds at the time of penetration. Right. Yeah. Because Wilma was a big cat five. Right. Super low pressures. Yeah, so then, let's see, next, a year later about, December 16th, oh. 1953, uh, this, this is another PBY, Typhoon Doris, and this was, you know, remember during this time, it was Morse code transmission, Oh, mm-hmm. yep. and I saw an interview with one of the person that was on the land side receiving the communication from the aircraft, and they said, and as a ham operator, I can tell you, you can tell who is operating a Morse code key because everybody has kind of an accent. Right. Yeah. I've heard that before, which I think is the weirdest thing, but. Right. Just the the timing between the characters and the timing between the words and the way they lean on certain characters. It's an accent. Mm -hmm. And uh, they said they knew who was operating the transmitter because they could recognize uh, their their code. And they said that they were about to go through the eyewall at two to 300 feet altitude. Oh my gosh. Um, and the transmission cut off mid-transmission. So they were instantly slammed into the water. Wow. And this uh, one wasn't a huge one, too. I mean, Cat 2, right? Yeah, so 95 miles an hour, roughly. Mm-hmm. Uh, but unfortunately, and these aren't really counted as crashes due to hurricane research, but two of the search planes crashed as well. My gosh. Uh, one of them uh, was a mechanical failure, just purely mechanical. It lost an engine and couldn't handle it. Mm. And I couldn't really find what happened to the other one. Mm. 
That's awful. Yeah, and the 50s were not good at all for hurricane hunting because it was in September of 55 um, that the next one happened. Yeah, and this is the only loss in the Atlantic. Which is really interesting because, you know, I feel like all we do is focus on Atlantic hurricanes. I know. So... <laughs> All these others, there's like Typhoon what? And yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, yeah. So this was a P2V, uh, Neptune, and mm-hmm. it was lost in Hurricane Janet, 300 miles southwest of Jamaica. And this was a Cat 4 at the time. Oh, okay. So this was big. Yeah, 145 miles an hour or so. Uh, mm-hmm. They were at 700 feet altitude, mm-hmm. and then they were never heard from again. Uh, mm-hmm. They had two reporters from the Toronto Daily Star with them that were writing a story about what it was like to go on a hurricane hunter flight. Oh, well, how close were they to the Bermuda Triangle when this happened? I mean, I'm not actually being obnoxious. I'm really asking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, be a good question. Yeah, because, so. I mean, that's got to be kind of close by. Hmm, um, because the whole never seen any wreckage or heard from them again. That's interesting. Yeah, well, there was actually some circumstances. The, the aerographer's mate mm-hmm. was not on the flight. He was left behind. And oh. Yeah. So his job was to call out to the pilot what the radar altimeter was saying. Okay. And because the radar altimeter, there was only one on the entire aircraft. Remember, this is 1955. Right, yeah. And it was back behind the cockpit on one of the science stations. Right. So that probably had something to do with it because that meant that uh, one of the other officers was trying to do that job as well as trying to ascertain what the wind speed and direction was and all that in the storm and do the science. Right. So there, there could have been a loss of communication there, but there is a book by David Toomey called Storm Chasers. And it's not a horribly long book. It's a few hundred pages, a nice hardback edition out there. And it focuses on the history of this flight and Hurricane Janet. Interesting. Yeah, it's actually a really interesting read. Hmm. That is that is really interesting. As we keep talking about this, because the next one was also in the Pacific, right? <laughs> right. Um, I keep thinking something that I read about was that we just didn't know a lot about Pacific um, weather because there weren't that many trade routes across it. Like, the majority of the boat traffic was in the Atlantic. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. So I wonder if, you know, we just had more planes that we sent out that direction just because we didn't know what was going on yeah hmm. Hmm, that's a good point yeah um so there's two more uh they'll be pretty short because there's not a lot of information out there that i could find on them mm. uh, one was january 15th so january uh of 1958 <laughs> uh that's weird <laughs> yeah uh, this was a wb50 and two typhoon ophelia which was a cat four at the time 500 miles west of guam again no wreckage nobody knows what happened uh mm. And I couldn't find any information at what altitude they had last reported. Okay. And then October 12th of 74, a WC-130H, uh, the South China Sea in a Cat 1 Typhoon, Typhoon uh, Bess. Again, not very strong winds. 74 or 5 miles an hour. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is no known cause for this storm. They've postulated that it must have been some kind of catastrophic mechanical failure because from what i could find there was no indication of trouble the plane just disappeared wow wow so 74 is the last time how often do the hurricane hunters go out do they go out for every large storm i I think for every large storm and for some disturbance tracking as well oh really Yeah, so I think doing, I mean, they don't go all the way where the disturbances are created coming off Africa, but I think that if there are several semi-large disturbances, they might go out and do some recon and research Okay. as well. I I don't know how many flights they do a year, though. I just looked up the 53rd weather reconnaissance, um, and it says that that their sort of operational plan is that they will be able to support 24-hour-a-day continuous operations with the ability to fly up to three storms at a time with a response time of 16 hours. All right. Yeah. So, and it says that that sounds ridiculous, but many times in the past, they've actually been on three storms continuously. So that's not, not all that. Yeah. (laughs) And so that's 10 full-time air crews and 10 part-time. 
Whew. Yeah, that's a that's a lot of people. That is. Hmm. Interesting. So that's pretty good. That seventy four is the last time that this has happened. Right. It hmm. it was with an aircraft that we currently use. Yes. Yep. Yeah. All the rest yeah. of those. Yeah. All the rest were, were older aircraft though. Right. Yeah. Interesting. So, so do you do you know how these early aircraft determined the wind speed and direction in the storm? I really hope it's something like they just looked out the window. <laughs> it is. Uh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> they looked at the foam from the, the churning of the sea below, oh, and <laughs> they could get the, the uh, direction from, you know, the direction the foam was blowing. Right. But they had roughly calibrated the wind speeds that were required to generate certain size foam streaks, certain oh, length of foam streaks. my gosh. That's amazing. Yes, so there was somebody that was trained, and it was their job to sit there and stare out the window and estimate wind speeds as they flew their course by looking at the sea foam. Wow. So you're like, that blob of foam went 12 feet, roughly. Yep. Looks like 74 miles an hour. I say you hold your thumb up to the window, and you're like, yeah, it's about as big as my thumbnail. Right. Oh, my gosh. That's definitely a 93 mile an hour. Yeah. (laughs) We're going to keep that in the cat one. (laughs) Yeah. You you have to... uh, to you know, file the thumbnail a little bit, make sure it's calibrated. <laughs> Just like your candles. Yep. Um, wow, that's cool. But I'm guessing we don't do that anymore. No, now, like you said, <laughs> we are packed with electronics on these planes and mm-hmm. we do electronic reconnaissance. Right. Yeah, exactly. Um, so we've talked about dropsons before, haven't we? I don't know if we have. We've talked about balloons. So think of this as a reverse balloon. <laughs> Right, yeah. It's just a lead balloon. <laughs> right. Uh, these were actually created by NCAR. Oh, okay. And they have GPS location, temperature, pressure, and humidity in these little tubes that are several hundred dollars each. Yeah. <laughs> uh, which isn't bad. No, it's not. And then they have a parachute that stabilizes and slows the fall. Okay. So if you were to drop this at 20,000 feet, it would reach a terminal velocity of about 36 miles an hour as you continue to come down and get into thicker atmosphere and the chute becomes more effective. It slows down to about 24 miles an hour when it hits the ground or the sea, which means that's about a seven-minute fall from 20,000 feet. That's impressive. I thought that they would be going a lot faster. Yeah. I mean, you think about it, 5,000-odd feet in a mile and... A mile a minute, 60 miles an hour. So, yeah, it works out about right. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. I wonder how far they, um, having that little parachute, how far it actually wanders, you know? Well, so that's how you get the wind, right? Well, yeah, but I mean, like, yeah. how far just... Yeah, I li- don't know. Linearly, and how far does it go? That, that'd be interesting to find out. And I saw one place, and I appreciate that this one location I found on the internet did it, that called these by their proper name of a dropwind sand. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> because we are getting wind from them. Yep. Um, Spellcheck didn't like that one very much. <laughs> no, no, it didn't. Spellcheck generally doesn't like our show notes. <laughs> that is so true. Um, so that's not, is that all we do? Just throw them out of the back of the plane? Well, they actually, there's this little cannon-looking thing in the floor that they put them yeah. in. <laughs> and yeah, it's, it's pretty it's cool. It's super neat. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but there is a new technology that was introduced in 2007 that I had not heard of until I started researching for the show that's called a drift sond. Yeah, I haven't heard of this at all. So. Yeah, the idea is they're a balloon that goes to a roughly constant pressure surface. So it would ascend, and instead of keeping ascending, it floats around at roughly this altitude. And it has about 35 dropsons in a rack below it. Okay. And as it goes along at pre-programmed times or locations, it can drop them one by one. And then as the dropson falls, it has a low-power transmitter that transmits data back to the driftsond. The driftsond does a little bit of processing and relays that data to a satellite that is then sent back to us. So you could put this out there and have hourly observations for 35 hours from one unit. So that's really useful, but can you use that in a hurricane? I would guess that you probably could. In fact, it should stay in the eye roughly. 
uh, if that's where he deployed it. Right, yeah. B- but uh, they were being tested around the West Africa breeding grounds because the right. planes don't go over there, like we said, to check out the, the tiny disturbances that are just forming. Right, so that's that's really neat because, I mean, that's, yeah, that's where they're born. So that's cool to have that amount of data from there. Right. Because I, I know, like, you know, whenever you go out on these storm chasing missions and that's the whole thing is to get there before anything forms so you can have a really adequate understanding of the atmosphere before the tornado happens. Um, So this is really cool that that's actually being done for hurricanes as well. Like we're not just waiting around. We actually have data that somebody can use and start to analyze about formation. Yeah, I was kind of surprised that this hadn't been done before, but yeah. I also wouldn't have thought of it. Uh, yeah, man, surely there's a <laughs> surely there's a PhD thesis or two out there about these things. Yeah, you would think. I would think so. Yeah, hmm. I'll have to look into that because that's uh, that's pretty interesting, actually. Yeah, but because... there's also one more way that we get data, and I know that you've uh-huh. had uh, some experience with these. <laughs> have I? <laughs> I thought you downloaded some of their data before. Oh, I don't think so. Oh, okay. Um, well, we'll cut that. Uh, okay. <laughs> uh, I don't download data, John. I generate it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, maybe we won't cut this. Uh, <laughs> uh, um, I mean, I've seen buoys before, if that's what you mean by experience. <laughs> right. So, weather buoys, which actually replaced their predecessor, which was the Weather Ship Network. Right, because, you know, you can just leave a buoy out there by itself. Right, and in 1948, there was actually a network of ships established that were just anchored in fixed locations. (laughs) And crews rotated on and off of them. And that network, it was started to be obsoleted in the 60s, but it continued until 1985 at a reduced capacity. No kidding. How would you like to be the last crew on the last weather ship? (laughs) That's interesting. Yeah. So I didn't know that it existed until that late. Hey, I was really surprised by that. Yeah, I mean, no kidding. I know there's been some efforts to do things like put modules on cargo ships now. Right. That as they go across the ocean, if they get to a meteorologically interesting area, they'll automatically release uh, a weather balloon. Uh, that'd be super awesome. Yeah. So that's kind of interesting. But mm-hmm. back to buoys. So <laughs> <laughs> the, the buoy network was started in 1951. Okay. And that was with moored buoys. Okay. So these are buoys Everywhere that have... Everywhere or just close to shore? I'm not sure where they were located okay. in the 50s. Yeah, I mean, there is a depth limitation because you do have a chain or right, yeah. a cord going all the way down. Yeah. And then in the 70s, so late 70s, 79, drifting buoys were added to the network mm-hmm. that could just float around. And we have all kinds of variations of those now. From simple ones to ones that are these wave gliders that we can direct and try to steer and all and kinds of crazy huge. stuff. Some of them are really big. Yeah, there's, you know, the traditional picture I have of a, of a weather buoy in my mind is something that's about 8 to 10 foot in diameter. Mm-hmm. And maybe has a mass that's 15 feet tall on it tops. Right, uh, yeah. And that is a class of weather buoy, but there is one that is 12 meters in diameter. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> um, so you think you're going to throw that thing out there, and it's good to go, but this is where you lose that the niceness of having a crew is because you get something 12 meters in diameter, you know what's going to decide to do? I mean, there's going to be a lot of seals and stuff that decide to just hang out on those. And that's no joke. This is a big problem, actually. <laughs> right. Like, so... they have a lot of interference with the with the sensors because of all the things that decide to lay up on those bigger buoys. Yeah, so you have wildlife, you have electronics operating in a harsh salt spray environment 24 yeah. hours a day. That's no big deal. Glaring sun. <laughs> uh, it's a really bad place to try to put sensors, but we yeah, do. Yeah, no kidding. Um, so I looked this up and I have to share it. Um, I was trying to figure out this moored buoy, like how deep can you go? And on several websites, it begins, moored buoys are the weather sentinels of the sea. (laughs) (laughs) I thought that was really good. The weather sentinels. I like it. Yeah. 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 That's pretty good. So. (laughs) I still haven't answered my question, but. (laughs) 
Well, anyway. You can go to the National Buoy Data Center, or NBDC, if you want an acronym that's impossible to remember. Yep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you can go get data for free from oh. the entire buoy network. Nice. You can either click and look at some graphs online, or you can actually download all the data, or you can do what I did. And one day I was like, I want to get a several years worth of data for a bunch of buoys. I don't remember what it was. It was several years ago. And I wanted to do some kind of analysis on it, some kind of statistics. And I found out that you can actually get your IP address banned from MBDC. Uh, (laughs) Too much? Were you trying to do too much? I had too many simultaneous connections for like 12 hours or something. Oh, they thought you were hacking them, but you um, just wanted to. You just wanted to run stats. Oh, so sad. Once you explain it, they'll say, oh, no, there are far better ways than this entire WGIT thing you had going on. (laughs) That's great. Uh, But you can get data from them. You can do – I was watching uh, recently with Matthew, watching the pressures and the wave heights because these tell you standard meteorological parameters, you know, temperature, pressure, humidity, but also things like wave height – uh, temperature a couple meters below the sea surface. Um, uh, actually, they have temperature sensors all the way to 500 meters. Um, wow. Yeah. So if you remember last week, listeners, um, we talked about the importance of having really warm water up to at least 200 meters. And so that's why the importance of these temperature sensors that go all the way down. And it looks like the line is almost 1,000 meters long, if not more. So that's pretty deep. Yeah. And the anchor is 4,200 pounds. Well, yeah. And just think about trying to keep that working. Yeah. Yeah. That's unbelievable. Yeah. So they have to be pretty resilient. Uh, yeah. The other fun thing to do is if there is a teleseismic earthquake, you can <gasps> watch the, uh, the tsunami disturbance go by. <gasps> nice. That's and these, nice. And you can also see all kinds of fun things like dispersion. And yeah, it's... It's a great place to go for some teachable data sets. That's really cool for a whole bunch of different interactive things, obviously. Um, right. I had a whole bunch of questions about that. We were talking about earthquakes and about tsunami waves and everything. I don't know if people believed me when I said that you could tell from the buoys, but I'll show them some of these. Uh, as always, I want my class to listen to our podcast instead of having to teach them. <laughs> right. All, all the info we need is right here. <laughs> yeah, so I'm actually looking because I think I have. Uh-oh. Yes, I do. So there's a blog post uh, on my website. <laughs> I'll link it in the show notes from April of 2014 uh, oh. about uh, an earthquake in Chile that was the first magnitude 7 plus of 2014. So it created some tsunami waves that propagated across the Pacific Basin. So they would have got to Hawaii and 15 hours or so it looks like anyway i've got some buoy data in there and you can see dispersion and all this it's kind of a fun write-up nice um that's pretty that's pretty interesting yeah Hmm. but Hmm. i know that you had one thing that you really wanted to talk about with respect to hurricanes that (laughs) was not instrumentation it was not fundamental physics but it was something about history and beliefs um right so we do a whole lab on um hurricanes in my native science class and as we've talked about a lot on here um there's some really cool stuff and these are some of my most favorite stories are from the indigenous peoples around um the caribbean specifically the uh tiano culture and they're in the yucatan now but they were sort of near cuba dominican in that area and they have some really awesome stories um their hurricane goddess is a woman and guabonse which is not how it's it is not pronounced phonetically (laughs) at all (laughs) um i put a link in here so you can see some of the art um and she is portrayed as this really angry woman some stories say that she is a woman during a specific time of the month which is funny and awkward to talk about to a freshman class. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But it's cool because, I mean, these are, you know, these are way pre-satellites, right? But Guabonse is depicted as this angry sort of head with a round mouth, exactly where the eye of a hurricane would be. And then her arms spiral out to the sides in the direction of the winds of a hurricane. 
Right. The rotation direction is correct. I mean, they look exactly yes. like rain bands do on radar. Right. So this one that I um, the link that I put in here has an overlay of Guabonse on Katrina. And it's crazy because, you know, they didn't have satellites. <laughs> and so they were actually the people that were affected by these hurricanes. You know, you're not going to find hurricane stories in the Pacific Northwest, but the people around the Caribbean obviously have a lot of them. And um, it's really interesting how much they knew about the hurricanes. Um, another thing that they did, all their, all their houses were like thatch, right? But they made all of the foundations out of stone in like specific areas and like a specific family would use a specific stone or something like that. So once the hurricane was over, they knew where their houses went. Oh. Yeah. Because they knew <laughs> they were getting blown away. <laughs> right. Uh-huh. And um, then my favorite thing, and I will... Um, share this too. So a lot of those islands out there are carbonate islands. There's a lot of caves, right? Right. We've talked, we've talked about caves um, before. And so they would have basically instrumentation. They would do things. They had these faces called zemis, which um, depicted a whole bunch of different gods. But some of the faces would have like really deep cheekbones. And so those faces would fill with condensation on the cheeks that looked like they were crying. And so they could use this as, you know, humidity. The way they would hang them, they could use, like, the sisal rope as a barometer, essentially. And Wow. <laughs> yeah. And so that they did, they did their own hurricane prediction because, I mean, you've got you've to know before it happens. And so they would know, you know, days before it happens sometimes that one was coming, that Guabonse was coming. Wow. Yeah. yeah, isn't that impressive? I mean, simply the fact that Guabonse's structure, the structure of that icon, is exactly like the structure of a hurricane. I mean, do you think that maybe by experiencing many hurricanes and knowing the direction of approach and everything, they were able to deduce the structure of the storm? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. This is This is where, just because it's this story about an angry woman and she's accompanied by a couple of other dudes who are like the waves and the lightning. Um, you know, just because it's a story like that, it doesn't make it any less scientific. There's still scientific value in that. I mean, right. amazing scientific value, right? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> once you know that, Oh, I'm in you know the Northeast or the Northwest quadrant of the storm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like yeah. where on Guabonse's arms are we at right now? You know, and it's it's exactly that. It's very interesting. And that's sort of that's that class that I teach this native science class that I talk about a lot because it is like that. You know, we talked on here about some really specific instrumentation and how we understand these. But we can't forget that the people who experienced them, you know, they really understood the structure of a hurricane, too. I mean, the eye is depicted on Guabonse as well. You know, her mouth is always sort of like really large and very circular it's right in the middle. Right. You know? So it's pretty neat. The hurricane stories are very interesting. So I put one link in here, and you can go off from there and read all about Guabonse because it's very cool. Yeah. Yeah, definitely check it out. The Yeah. You're right. The picture with Guabonse over Katrina is just amazing. <laughs> I, I I know. Like, when I, first, when I first heard that story, I was like, okay. And then I saw that and was like, yep, okay. <laughs> yep. <laughs> exactly right. <laughs> Well, I don't know. Is there anything else that you wanted to add about hurricanes before we yeah. wrap up our two-parter? I, I think I think we're good. I'm sure there's probably tons of other stuff that we've missed, and maybe we'll revisit this in a couple of years when some other new big hurricanes have reset all the records. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, that means it's time for everybody's favorite segment of the show, Fun Paper Friday. Yay! No cowbell. Everybody's sleeping. <laughs> Oh, yes. Yes, we were recording late uh, yes. <laughs> and probably going to stay up later to watch the Mars landing that was happening yeah. as well. Yep. So anyway, oh. this paper, I picked it and sent it. <laughs> and then you said, oh, yeah, I've seen this one. <laughs> I mean, it's still funny. Right. It's, it's pretty so good. <laughs> it's by Evan Schwab. It's called Cure for a Headache. <laughs> Which isn't really the truth in here. Unless you could reconfigure your entire cranial system to look like a woodpecker. 
Right. So this entire paper, which is all of a page because it's a summary, uh, is talking about woodpeckers and how on earth do they survive slamming their head over and over and over and over into a piece of wood without having concussion, all kinds of, you know, bleeding and losing (laughs) eyes and all kinds of grotesque things. I know. (laughs) And I love it because this was some, you know, scientist sitting in their backyard going, huh, (laughs) you know what I mean? Yeah. (laughs) Like, it's beautiful. Um, But it's, I mean, it's, it's evolution. I mean, they've evolved all these sort of cranial things that compensate for the incredible forces when they slam their head into a tree. Yeah, so <laughs> they they cite a specific species in here, which I am not going to try to pronounce. Oh, pileated. The pileated woodpecker. Okay, yes. So <laughs> We'll just stop there. <laughs> they also have the formal names for all these in here, but yeah, yeah, you, you no. can look that up. Uh, but they say that they can strike a woody surface at a rate of 20 hertz, so 20 times a second. I know, love, in parentheses, they have, this is not a misprint. <laughs> right. <laughs> and then they can do that 12,000 times a day, which is 600 seconds. So that's 10 minutes over the course of a day of constant pecking at 20 hertz. Uh, but the force, man, 1,200 G? The force is strong. <laughs> Oh. Yes. <laughs> that was good. <laughs> so 1200G is synonymous to you running into a wall at 16 miles an hour face first 12,000 time. times a day. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> That's unbelievable. So well, yeah, normal this, skulls wouldn't stand up to that. Yeah, this is not one you can try at home. <laughs> no, no. Uh, one one time would be plenty to give you a concussion and probably lots of other fun damage. Mm-hmm, but woodpeckers mm-hmm. just keep going. Now, yeah. granted, as they point out in the paper, they're, they have a rather small brain and there's lots of room for cushioning yeah. around it. <laughs> I thought that was sad. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, they don't get brain damage because not much brain to damage. <laughs> right, the... Uh, the thinky-thinky parts are housed in a very specialized skull, though, because it's a skull that is not only thick, but squishy. Right. Yeah, exactly. So there's all kinds of stuff to cushion the blow, essentially. And part of it is just the structure of the bone is fundamentally different. Mm-hmm. The bone is more compliant. But there are all of these special functions that have giant medical names. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but <laughs> they're scary. basically they're basically cushions around the brain and the neural pathways. Um, so it's pretty funny when they're talking about eyes because they talk about like eye hemorrhaging and all that jazz. And so in very medical terminology, basically it closes its eyes and its eyelids keep its eyes from popping out of its head. Yes, they say that they are uh-huh. similar to a seatbelt. Yes. <laughs> uh. um, to quite literally... <laughs> Its eyes would pop out of its head. So it's about Um, a millisecond before the strike. Right, right. And the other thing that I thought was really fascinating is for all of this protective stuff to work, they have to be really square to the surface they're hitting. Otherwise, torques are induced. Yep, I I also highlighted that part. And I was like, wow, they have to hit it perpendicular every time because it's not set up to protect from shearing motions. Right, which you yeah. think about shearing in a beak and it gets yeah, unpleasant gross. very quickly. Gross really fast. Uh, yeah. So, but they're doing this with their eyes closed for the last millisecond at 20 times a second with a tiny brain. Oh my God. Uh, and this isn't even the weirdest part. So all this makes sense, especially the eyelid part. That makes a lot of sense. Right. But man, the discussion about their tongues. Oh yeah, that was weird. <laughs> So I don't know if this has, I mean, which he kind of says too, like maybe this doesn't really have a lot to do with this whole headache thing, but it has to do with just the things that they eat. But like their tongue goes, passes through their right nostril, originates on the dorsum of the maxilla, passes through the right nostril between the eyes, divides the two, arches over the superior portion of the skull and around the occiput, okay, so it's eyeball, Right, passing on either side of the neck, coming forward through its lower jaw. 
And then it reunites into a single tongue. So the tongue comes from the back, splits into two, goes through more parts of the body, reunites into one tongue. (laughs) Yeah. What the heck? Yeah. That's that's creepy. And it can shoot out four inches beyond the end of their bill. Also didn't know that. I didn't either. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> and they said that most of the time when they're banging, it's just like for fun. I mean, it's Yes, yeah, so they called fun. it drumming for mating and that kind of right. thing. Right. Yeah. So that was um, also new to me. I assumed they were getting like beetles and stuff, but it said they eat ants mostly. <laughs> well, and another mechanism that we actually skipped over, I forgot uh, that I'd highlighted this, was there would still be problems with their eyeballs, even if they're held in their skull, just from that acceleration crushing parts of the eye mm -hmm. and causing like retinal detachment and things like that. Uh, They can actually pump more blood and briefly elevate the pressure inside the eye right before impact. Yeah. That's crazy. So the eye pressure is higher and it can handle the, the 1200 G force. That's crazy. Yeah. (laughs) Tiny brain. And it still knows to do that. Tiny brain and lots and lots of time to evolve and, probably some not so great adaptations in some of the early stages yeah that's exactly i'd hate to be further down that rung of the evolutionary ladder the one where their eyeballs explode (laughs) nope that didn't work (laughs) yeah but Uh, it's a pretty amazing bird yeah 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 and now i will think a lot more about its eyeballs exploding whenever i watch one in the backyard now yeah i will say they are annoying birds uh yeah they're not wonderful not at all but they're pretty so that's okay right (laughs) (laughs) and so i mean he wraps this up with saying so when you complain about your headache think of the industrious woodpecker (laughs) right (laughs) (laughs) thanks ivan (laughs) right just stop running into walls you'll be fine exactly (laughs) so (laughs) well if you have an idea for a fun paper that you'd like to hear us talk about or if you have another question that you think we could answer or possibly even end up taking an entire show answering we would love to hear from you Uh, so more email more voice comments however you want to get in touch with us but shannon how can they talk to us uh well show at don'tpanicgeocast.com is our email address um you can always head over to our website don'tpanicgeocast.com uh we're in the swung chat room on slack swung.rocks we are at Don't Panic Geo on Twitter. John is at Geo underscore Lehman. And I am at Shannon Doolin. And I, I'm so excited that people are tagging us and with cool geology questions. So that's fun. Yeah, you answered some question about <laughs> uh, what, what did I fly over? And it was yeah. the, what was it, eroded part of a fold? A, pl- a plunging anticline. Yeah. Uh, so you get really weird shapes all because of its plunging nature. So it's pretty cool. Yeah, so Twitter and Slack, there's been some great discussions. Yep, absolutely. All right. Well, until next week, remember, don't panic. It's not an exact science. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views